Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, ki l'yishua teka kiviti Hashem, bo Yeshua bo. We're continuing on in Parsha Shemini, and I want to get down to the nitty gritty on some gematrias. So I want to start off with actually what's called the value of a pasuk. And the value of a pasuk is from, go to the publisher page here so I can, you just start dropping bombs from sources and you're just like, now who, who published this? Where is this from? Okay, so who published this? Everything's in Hebrew. That's great. Bayit, Beit Midrash, uh, Il- Ilad, Ilaed. Come on, people, help me out. Comparing gematriotes of entire Pesukim in the Torah, like verses. Uh, Pesukim is verses. And Sefer Tehillim. Okay, so we use the Book of Psalms. Um... Wow. Tells me it was designed by. Tell me who it was distributed by. Okay. We don't have no publishing information. Philip Feldheim Inc. is the distributor. But that's all we get. Other than that, this book gets straight to business. So. Yeah. Sorry, I don't have information for you. Rabbi Avraham Katz, who is the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshiva Gedola of Great Neck, says the numerical value of, which is the gematria, of the expression Ki Lodevarak Hu Makam or Mikem is the same as that of the word gematria or gematriot, which is 679, a most intriguing and most valuable tool in our search for deeper meaning in the Torah. Rabbi Yehuda HaChasid said that, it said, it has been my distinct pleasure to see this tool elucidated so clearly in this sefer. The author focuses on Many fascinating points and bring about the precise beauty of the divine word. I am sure the reader of this sefer will gain immeasurably in his appreciation for Torah and grow in Amuna as I have. So, yeah, Rabbi Abraham Kotz, but I'm not sure if he's the author. I don't know who the author is. That's kind of kind of bothering me man i don't know why that's bothering me why 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 can't we know who the author is like i'm gonna have to google this or something like what is the deal putting stuff in hebrew and not even letting me know just copyright 2011 by the author (laughs) it's just like okay anyway so if you wonder how i got this book i got this book from ish pala and uh yeah, he said he got it at Half Price Books. Half Price Books is that place you can go to, and it's like they may or may not have some Jewish here, and if they do, it's really good, and I like it, and I'm getting it. So that was what this was. But anyway, looking at Parsha Shimini, sorry for all of that randomness to start this podcast. 
It says that Vayikra 11, 47, 47 says this, Leviticus eleven forty seven, which is, again, that's part of our Kashrut section. The Pasuk says, to make a separation between the Tame and between the Tahor, the impure and the pure, and between the animal which is eaten and between the animal which cannot be eaten. Lo tokel. It literally says, not or shall not eat. Okay, so you can eat it, but this is something you should refrain from doing. So that's the whole verse. I want to bring this up because how many of us, when we used to be able to have company over our house before quarantine, uh, depending on your gathering, you can still do that, I guess. But how many of you, when you have people come over, say, Have whatever you want, you know, just help yourself to food if you're hungry. How many people are really going to go and grab your fish out of the fish tank or your cat or your dog or your chicken or your duck? Because I want a duck and I'm looking forward to the day I get to get one. So, Bezrat Hashem, I do. Or whatever your pet is, turtles, rabbits, hamsters, you know, how many people are really going to go after your pets and be like, Mmm, delicious. Let's fry it. Because that's the equivalent of what we do when we reject chapter 11 of Leviticus and chapter 14 of Deuteronomy. We go, Hashem said we can eat what we want. And it's like, yeah, but you eat those two chapters? No. And it's like, you might want to, because it says you shouldn't eat those things. Just like, You shouldn't eat people's pets when you go over their house. You can eat them, but you shouldn't eat them. I guarantee you, if you try to go over somebody's house and eat their pet, among many things, you would not be invited back over there, probably. Just want to point that out because Kashrut, I mean, it's like, hey, you can go out and kill all these unkosher animals and eat them if you want, but you shouldn't. Such is free choice that Hashem gives to all mankind. So I don't want to say about that. No, it's not because I got stuff in my notes. But this is not the Kashru podcast, so that's not for this podcast. Ha'amak Devor says, A commentary on the Torah explains that this pasuk is instructing us to examine and clarify all doubts. The Hamek Devar states, it is a positive commandment to investigate and to examine anything which is a doubt. So now the Gematria of Vayikra 1147 is 2166. That's the Gematria for the whole verse. That's the same gematria as Bamibar chapter 8, verse 14, Numbers 8, verse 14, that says, You shall separate the Levites from the midst of the children of Israel, and to me will be the Levites. Goes on to say, The Levites were the blessed teachers of Israel, as the Torah states, they will teach your judgments to Yaakov. Devarim 33, 10. The connection between the Pasuk telling us to examine and clarify all doubts and the Pasuk telling us to separate the Leviim, who were blessed to be teachers in Israel, 
becomes plain with the move or with the assistance of Rabbeinu Yonah on Mishnah and Maseket, which is tractate Avot. So Mishnah Avot says, the Rabbeinu Yonah explains the reason why Rabban Gamliel says, provide yourself with a teacher, remove yourself from doubt. Together, he says that in one Mishnah, it says it is that one should provide yourself with a teacher in order to remove yourself from doubt, as it states that it means to say one should accept his contemporary as a teacher, even though he is not wiser than he, and even if he did not achieve his level of wisdom. In order to remove himself from doubt, for sometimes the wise one is in doubt about his instruction and does not know what to say. Thus it follows that the Levites were blessed to be teachers in Israel, who were blessed to be teachers in Israel, would assist in the clarification of doubts. This clarification could be the connection between the Pasu telling us to examine and clarify all doubts and the Pasu telling us to separate the Levites who were blessed to be teachers in Israel. This connection is further underscored by the fact that both Pesukim, both verses, use a form of the word separation. So, looking at what we just brought down, that in order to have the proper way to investigate and examine and remove all doubts, you got to make sure that you appoint for yourself a teacher. All of us need someone to help us look at things, source stuff out and come from the right place to do everything. Because if you don't have a teacher, if you don't have like a rabbi, if you don't have a bait dean, you know, if you don't have a sugia, uh, then, you know, you're going to you're going to have some issues when it comes to rightly dividing the word of God. Uh, being a approved workmanship of the Torah, you know, studying work to show yourself approved kind of thing. You're going to have a hard time doing that if you don't have the ability to examine, investigate, extinguish, uh, have the right sources and learn from the elders who've gone before us. You know, so that's kind of important. And I just want to point that out to everybody. Big deal. So even in our Torah portion, we learned that we have to have teachers. And when we get back into Eretz Israel with the return of Mashiach Yeshua, reestablishment of the temple, and we have Levites and all that, we're going to have to listen to the Levites because they're, they're going to know what's up. And namely, we're going to get our Sanhedrin back. Definitely going to have to listen to them. They will solve the issue about whether or not you can drive on Shabbat. Uh, if we'll still be driving at that point. Hopefully we can switch from cars to just, uh, I want an Iron Man suit. I'm not going to lie. Because, you know, that's just important. I would love one of those. Many people want angel wings, but I would just love an Iron Man suit. Just give me that, please. I'll take it. But anyway, uh, a point for yourself, a teacher. Have a teacher. Have someone to help you make proper distinctions. And furthermore, Parsha Shimini is teaching us how to make distinction. Parsha Shimini is here to be a teacher for us, should we accept it. Now, Parsha Shemini is the eighth, or it means eight, right? So we're looking at the letter Chet. It says the letter Chet is written 
with a sharp and jagged notch on its forehead, it's the most or it's almost as if there were two separate letters barely joined together. They need each other to stand, but they wish they did not. So they barely touch. Chet is the agony of a soul torn apart from itself. The top of your throat and the bottom of your throat fighting against one another. They create the sound of Chet. This is the reason why the Chet yields so many strange and conflicted word pairs. You know, sometimes when you're studying or sometimes you're listening to your teacher, they'll say one thing you were thinking another. Like, for instance, when I was reading the PJ Library, uh, Pesach Haggadah, the Seder uh, Haggadah that they have, it had the cup of Miriam in there. And I was like, wait, what? So now we're going to have wine and water on the table, you know, water being turned to wine, you know, blood and water. I'm thinking, wow, at the Seder, we're going to see water turned to wine. And Captain Israel was like, yeah, we're going to have blood and water. And I'm like, I, I was thinking Yeshua turning water into wine because, you know, we have the cup of Miriam because our water. But then we're looking at the wine over here. And he's like, no, the wine represents the blood. And, you know, we're going to have four cups of blood and uh, we're going to have this cup of water in there. And so blood and water came out the side of Yeshua and we sat down to a Pesach Seder. And it's like, so we're sitting out to a Pesach Seder and there's blood and water on the table. And I'm like. Oh my gosh, like what? I'm thinking of one thing, he's thinking another thing. So that's that's the way you want to have this conflicted word pairs that the letter Chet is bringing down. And in Parsha Shemini, there's a conflict of word pair going on at the very center point of Torah. The central point of the Torah scroll is what we reach in this Torah portion, which is the word Darash Darosh. Darosh Darash, Slika, which is inquiring, inquire, like inquire to inquire. And it's Drosh Drosh, basically, if you want to get down to the etymology of the word, which is investigate, investigate. And that was the dispute between Moshe and Aharon about whether or not the Rosh Hodesh offering should have been eaten by Aharon and his sons after the death of Nadav and Avihu. So, Moshe was thinking one thing, Aaron was thinking another thing, but Moshe was like, you know what, Aaron, you're right. And it's like, wow, like, so this is the, the beauty of reading the Talmud that you'll read one rabbi brings down this other opinion. Another rabbi says something else. Another one's like, I disagree with both of y'all. And I think, you know, he doesn't say I think he says, and I, I say to you, my source because you realize as they're saying, Rabbi so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so said in the name of so-and-so, that's sourcing it out. That would be like us saying, oh, yeah, well, Shaul said because he heard from who's, who taught Shaul? Gamliel. Okay, cool. So, yeah. So, you know, you'll see all that kind of stuff going on. So that's kind of a picture of how we do that now. But all these sources actually are supposed to work together. So the word chet talks about, well, there can be conflicts, but they are brought together. 
It goes on to say, and this is why at the end of a book in the Torah and at the beginning of something difficult, we say, Chazak, be strong. And we say that three times. Chazak, Chazak, venit Chazak. Because we just ended the, uh, the Torah, uh, a book of Torah, and it's like, woohoo, we did it. Wow, crazy. And it's like, Right on the tail end of that, we're getting ready to go into a new book. And it's like, okay, start the ascension all over again. It's like, you were at a high point, now you got to go back to the bottom. Just kind of like when we come out of Shabbat, we were at a high point, and then we got to go back to the bottom. Start the ascent all over again. And I brought up in my introduction that, you know, we got out of Pesach. Pesach took us all the way up, like so many levels, so quick, so fast, so much elevation. And now... The end of Pesach happened, and now we're into full-blown Sephirot HaOmer and back into the normal work week and uh, the Shabbat cycles. And it's like, yep, Chazak. And it's like, that's the eight. That's the Chet, the letter Chet. So don't hate the game and don't hate the player. All right. Anyway, so my gematrias are Shemini. And I love this, too, because, again, thinking about the letter Chet, that uh, I got all these gematrias right now. And I'm pretty sure all my other gematria peeps out there, including Bahaturim, y'all are probably going to have completely different takeaways when you do gematrias on Shemini. So that's, like, completely awesome just to, I just want to mention that. It says, Shemini... These are just my notes here. It says, means eighth from the word Shemone, which means eight. And again, I talked about Shemone Esrei, which is eight and ten, which is 18. The 18 blessings we recite in the Amidah. Now I want to go to Sefes, same as on Shemot 15.1. Here's what he says. I got a few notes here, so I have to scroll through stuff. Az Yashir. Remember the song that we sang in Exodus 15, 1 after the sea? So the word Az Yashir, the Seth is saying, Maze, takes it for granted that we are aware that the focus on the word Az is an immediate tip-off. A tip-off to what? A tip off to the fact that we are dealing with the phenomena that are le ma'ala min hateva, i.e. above natural, it's supernatural, super being Latin for above. So we're like, okay, we're talking about something that's supernatural and Seth is same as is like, yeah, 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 I know it's supernatural. I know, but we need to talk about this. <laughs> it's just like, hello, supernatural here. And again, we're in chimney, right? Supernatural. It says, how do we know that we're in the realm of Lema Allah Min Hateva? We're in the above nature. It says, well, the letters of the word Oz have the numerical value of eight. And it says, how so? Aleph is one, Zion is seven, seven plus one is eight. And the number eight is often an indicator of special Kedusha sanctity status. 
So Parsha Shemini is teaching us about special Kedusha sanctity status. Mind you, I want to bring up again Kashrut because I just love that it's in this Torah portion. It's like you want to have some holiness enter into your life, eat kosher. Anyway, it says thus, Brit Milah takes place on the eighth day after birth. Now, for those of us who've been medically circumcised, there is a procedure called Hatifat Dam Brit. And there's a whole PDF on it, but that's what we are supposed to do uh, for men when we come into Torah and uh, go undergo conversion. Um, whether or not you've gone through the mikvah or you're waiting to go through the mikvah, like myself, I'm waiting to go through the mikvah. I've been mikvahed uh, several times, but I haven't done the conversion mikvah per se. Now, does that mean I'm not converted? No, because you know what happened at the mountain? We were converted the time that we got to the mountain. We're considered idolaters and everything, but we had to immerse our garments we had to abstain from the male and female interaction, separate ourselves for three days, prepare ourselves and get ready for the tour. Well, did you know Ankylos brings down that one of the ways you can convert before converting is to wash your garments, i.e. to change your ways, change the way you think, change the way you speak, change the way you act. Like if you were previously not eating kosher, now you are. Now you're studying Torah portions. Now you're worshiping on the Shabbat. And when you're worshiping on the Shabbat, you're fulfilling all the commandments anyway. And when you worship on the Shabbat, you reject idolatry. Megillah 13a says if you reject idolatry, you're considered to be a Jew. So working all these things hand in hand, even if you haven't gotten circumcised yet or mikvahed yet, but you're repudiating idolatry, you're entering into the Shabbat and you're becoming more and more shomer in your life, that is conversion. So. At what point can you really say you're a Jew? Well, it's when you're born again. John chapter 3 brings down, how do you know when someone's born again? Well, you can't tell where the wind's coming from, but you can see the effects of it. So there's that. So when you can pinpoint, okay, the wind that I'm feeling right now, it started right here. When you can pinpoint those coordinates, that's how you can tell when a person has become a new creation. So with that being said, I want to personally share with those of you who feel like, well, I haven't done formal conversion yet and I'm not, I shouldn't be calling myself Jewish. Just want to let you know, even if you go the natural route with it, the child at some point in their life has to go through a mikvah on the eighth day they get circumcised, but they're not liable for any Torah observance until 20. They're going through and it's not until like four or five. Again, I don't have the exact things in me, but I've podcasted this before, but that's when they start learning the alphabet. And then at another age, they start reading the written Torah, which is by the way, the fulfillment of what the father is supposed to teach to the son. The father is obligated to teach his son the written Torah. All the oral Torah, all of the sages and all that, that comes later. And the father may or might may not be able to accomplish that. He can hand over the reins. But every father has to teach their child the written part. They're obligated to do that. But anyway, I digress. So you learn that part. And then you start learning the Mishnah. 
which is the first half of the Talmud. Don't get into the Gemara yet. Just get the Mishnah down. Then you get into the Gemara. Okay? And then after that, you go on and on and on to wherever you need to go. But the point is, at what point do you consider a Jewish child a Jewish child? Because we all have to get mikvahed. We all have to get circumcised. And just because a Jewish child, a child born to Jewish parents, okay, like I'm using the other Jewish child, but what if that child grows up and Chasbe Shalom becomes an idolater? They don't wear zitzit. They don't eat kosher. They're a part of a whole nother faith or religion or whatever. You know, what's the implications of that? You know, so it's like, we have to choose to be in covenant and, and be in covenant and everything else follows because a person doesn't just go, I'm an idolater. I'm an idolater. Oh, mikvah. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. It's like, no, you were Jewish before you hit the water. You were Jewish before you got circumcised because you wouldn't do any of those things if you weren't. And Chasmei Shalom, that you do any of those things and you don't want to be. Because you nullify all of those acts if you don't intend to follow through with them. So there's all the different uh, the things that on paper it says only a Jew can say the blessing for a mercy and a mikvah. So when you say the mikvah blessing for the conversion mikvah, only a Jew can say that blessing. And it's like, okay. And then the actual written halakha about who can immerse in a mikvah is one who's circumcised, you know, for the conversion mikvah. So technically you should have to get circumcised first and then you can go through the mikvah and then you can say the bracha and then you'll become a Jew. Now that's on paper, but in reality, it doesn't always work like that. And so this is to be, um, encouragement to you and also to be uh informational for those of you who are like i don't know about that jewish stuff and i gotta go through all this before i can be jewish and it just creates a lot of confusion because you're talking to people and it's like they start asking you questions and it's like well i'm learning and i'm growing well none of it makes a lick of difference if you're not born again so if you can start with being born again which happens again before all of those other things. You're born again, and then you can walk all this other stuff out. So at some point, you know you're going to get circumcised. At some point, you know you're going to get mikvahed. Which is why the whole thing, uh, one of the people who was with Shaul, I believe it was Titus, who uh, Shaul wasn't worried about him getting circumcised. But eventually, the guy got circumcised. So... Anyway, belaboring that point, uh, circumcision is a part of eight. So we got kashrut, sanctity. We got circumcision, sanctity. Uh, going on with Seth is same as it says, likewise, the festival of Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day of Yom Tov. Because Shavuot is considered to be the eighth day of Pesach. That's why we count the Omer end the week of unleavened bread and we end it when we touch base into Shavuot. So we literally connect those festivals together. So 
just like on Sukkot, we have the seven days, and in the eighth day of Sukkot is Shemini Atzeret Simchat Torah. They're connected right there. No need to count the Omer there because you've already been counting it every night because you have seven sevens during the Sukkot because the seven uh, Sephirot, instead of having to take a whole week to do them, you get one night to do them. And the reason why you get one night to do them, because you have the actuality of that Sephirah manifested in the seven shepherds coming to visit your sukkah every night, which is called the Ushpazin. So the Kedusha of Abraham, the Kedusha of Yitzhak and Yaakov, Moshe, Aharon, David and Yosef, those each represent those seven weeks of the Omer. And so you get seven, you get one week and one night done. So that way you can go right into the, the eighth day when uh, Shemini Adzeret Simchat Torah comes up, like you, you're rectified again. But in the spring in Pesach, you're not out in the sukkah, you're in your own house and you're eating the matzah and you're starting all the way over and you're working the long way up. So... Anyway, just to kind of point that out, because one of the teachings about Sephirot Omer is the first week is Abraham, and then you go into Yitzhak, you go into Yaakov, you go into Moshe, you go into Aharon, you go into Yosef, and you go into David. And so you're counting Chesed, you're counting Gevura and Teferit, and so on and so forth. So we're taking a whole week to count these things out in the Omer. So literally you're working your way up the ladder of Kedusha, sanctity, so you can get to the eight. So it goes on to say that this Shemini Azeret has so much intrinsic Kedusha that we don't need to have visual aids like a sukkah or lulav. Why is it the farewell to the sukkah on the seventh day and not on the eighth day, but the sukkah can stay up, but you don't treat it like a sukkah and you don't say the blessing for a sukkah on the eighth day? Because while there's so much kedusha that's going on that you don't need any visual aids. It's like, well, you're sitting in a sukkah, but really is it a sukkah? It's beyond a sukkah right now. So... I don't need the lulav. I don't need the sukkah to let me know I'm dwelling in the shadow of my faith with Hashem. I'm in it. And if I could be so crazy to say, this is why that passage in Revelation where it says, I saw the city and there was no temple in it. That doesn't necessarily mean there's not a temple in there. It's just, there's so much going on there that it's like, okay, so there's a temple. But Yeshua said something greater than the temple is here. And even in the commentaries about uh, Parashat Teruma that, and Ketisa is that had we not worshipped the golden calf, we wouldn't have even needed a tabernacle. But yet we were going to make it anyway. That's, yeah. Going on, it says, but much more is going on here than the word Oz which again is eight. And it says, and it's remez, which is this hint to the supernatural. The Seth is saying, mes, is reading the word kisaka in the pasuk 
just cited in Tehillim Psalm 93.2 as related to the word, because it was talking about your throne, Hashem. And it was saying, as the word mikse, i.e. cover. So the throne of Hashem is related to a cover, which is the kiska, the kisacha, or kisach, yeah, kisacha, your, your throne, related to the word mikse, which is covering. Thus he understands the pasuk is telling us that Hashem's presence in the world is covered, i.e. not apparent to our eyes. In the same vein that the Pasu continues with the phrase, Me'olam Ata, those words are clearly alluding to the word He'elelim, which is hidden, and they're informing us that Hashem's presence is usually not evident to the unaided eye. So, telling 15 and telling 93 are these little cross patterns to teach us about the loftiness of the song at the sea and the transcendence that is intrinsic to the number eight. And so we're looking at the throne of Hashem and his covering of it, which we can't see with our unaided eye. This is why when we pray in the Siddur during the morning blessings, we say that Hashem's throne is well established. His name endures and his throne is well established. We say that blessing after the Shema. And it's like Hashem's throne being established does not look so established right now because it's like there's there's quarantine, there's COVID-19, there's people in the world doing other stuff. We don't have a temple yet and da-da-da-da. It's like, yeah, I know you can't see it right now, but it's here. And so one of the reasons we pray, may the final redemption be revealed because it's here. We can't see it. We have to have the revealing of it. It has to be uncovered. Mashiach ben David has to be revealed because we read in Sanhedrin 98 that Mashiach sits at the gates of Rome. Mashiach ben David has been here for at least 2000 years. When Yeshua went up into the clouds, he was covered. So our unaided eye can't see it. He ascended to the throne and sit at the right hand of the Father, like we know all this. But we need that revelation. We need it to be revealed out. That's why the redemption literally is hidden in each and every one of us. So when you look at how do we get to the final redemption? We have to reveal the redemption that is within us. We first have to be redeemed and then the world can be redeemed. So I know that's crazy, but it's true. You know, like you can't expect Hashem to send Mashiach to bail us out. And again, that's another thing wrong with the Armageddon and doom uh, message that, yeah, fire, brimstone, and the world's going to end, and everybody's going to be nuked, and da-da-da-da-da. So you want Mashiach to come back to whatever's left of the world, not, you don't want him to come back to the divine sparks you went to gather, you don't want him to come back to the disciples he told you to go make, you don't want any of that, because Yeshua told us, totally told us what to do, 
And so it's just like, no, no, we don't want to listen to you. We just want you to come back because we want to get out of out of this torture device. We want to stop suffering. We want to stop dying. We want to stop having disease and plagues and famines and woes, tribulations and trials in the world. And he's like, I, I thought I gave you my shalom. So now you don't want to do what I asked you to do before I left. And then you're rejecting the shalom that I gave you during that time. That's very uh, hard to take because even I myself haven't even registered that. Because sometimes I feel like, oh, my gosh, like, oh, life is just such, oh, it just a sham. Just come get us. Oh, my gosh. It's like, I gave you my shalom. I gave you my shalom and I've overcome the world. How come you're not? And so Shomer man <laughs> suit has blown up and powered down and I have to build a new one. And uh, yeah, so that's just how life rolls around here. So that is uh, the first Gamatria of Shemini. Second Gematria of Shemini is Shem Ayin, the name of 70, which breaks down to the name of seven. So you have seven 10 times and you get 70. So you look at the letter Ayin, and it's interesting. Because the Ayin is a Yod and a Zayin. It says it is important to note that the two heads of the Ayin not touch one another. This perhaps is because the Ayin is a joining of two letters, the Yod and the Zayin. In the same way that the letters result from the combination of two and three letters and their respective discreteness must be preserved. So when you form letters in Hebrew, like the letter Aleph, you have to write the letters in such a way that you know that there are unique letters in that particular letter. So when you write the Aleph, you have to see that there, oh, there's two Yods and oh, there's a Vav. Just like when you write the letter Ayin, you need to be able to see, oh, there's a Yod and there's a Zayin. And then the Zayin is the number seven and then you have the Yod, which is ten. So I just said seven, ten times would be the 70, which is Ayin. So the reason I said that, because looking at the name of seven, you know, what is the seven? The seven is the Shabbat. The Shabbat being connected to a name of Hashem because it's a habitation of Hashem's dwelling. And then you have the fact that you times that times seven and you're getting up to 70, which is the Ayin, which is the Yod and the Zayin. And that Yod plus Zayin, 10 plus seven is 17, which again is another name of Hashem, which is called Tov. Good. So looking at good, as Tov, the name of Hashem being like in the Shabbat 
times 10, or being in the Shabbat with the 10 powers of your soul, which are the 10 sephirot, you take your intellect, your understanding, your wisdom, and your uh, knowledge, that's your intellect makeup, and then you connect that with those lower sephirot, like your, your kindness, your justice, your beauty, your victory, your compassion, your foundation, in your kingdom, your desire, your will. All you unify all ten of those elements, which are the ten sephirot. Look at the tree of life, the Kabbalah tree of life, those ten sephirot, those make up the human being. And you add that into the seventh day, and you have the seventy right here. You have the Shem Ayin. The name of a Shem is one who is completely uh, refining themselves, and they've placed themselves in the name of God, hit, namely his Shabbat, and it's Tov, it's good. Hashem said it's very good. You know, he blessed the seventh day and he hallowed it, you know, kind of thing. So Tov has to do with good, which is the Ayin, right? So when you look at this, 1 Timothy 6, 12 says, fight the good fight. Now, what is the good? The good is Tov. What is Tov? The Torah. Tov is what the Torah is called. And Yeshua said, why do you call me good? Which we'll get into that in a second. But actually, we'll get into that right now because that's really what this is going to connect to. It says, why do you call me good? Yeshua said to him, no one is good except one who is Hashem. That's Mark 10, 18. So, says those familiar with the Kabbalistic knowledge made available to us by the Holy One have further, or have said further, Zohar volume 294b, that the striving of the earnest servants of Hashem through studying and observing the commands of the good teaching, the Torah, yeah, that the striving of the earnest servants of Hashem through studying and observing the com the commandments of the good teaching, which is Torah. Okay, and it says Mishlei four two refers to the Torah as a good teaching. So does Or Hachaim Vayikra twenty two twelve through thirteen, and again Luke eighteen eighteen cross references with the Mark passage I just recited. It says Yeshua and the Torah and Hashem are one. Why do you call me good? This is a passage here from Chazal. It says, I myself have studied extensively the words of Chazal regarding he is silenced. Had it not been for the explanation given by the Gemara, I would have said that Chazal regarded such a prayer as that given by his person, your name, or Slika, given by this person, your mercies extend even to a bird's nest, as smacking of heresy, or more specifically Christianity, whose adherents were trying to infiltrate Judaism in those days, the version of Rif and Rosh of the Mishnah in Barakot 33 is, one who states, May the good one bless you. That is heresy. One who says, 
your mercy extends to a bird's nest, or your name is remembered for the good, or modim modim, i.e. repeating the word we thank twice in prayer, which Hazal see as a person implying that there are two gods. That person is silenced. Tosafot and Megillah 25 explain that the good ones implies that there are gods, namely more than one. In other words, that is heresy or more specifically Christianity, which is based on the Trinity. It thus occurred to me that the entire Mishnah may be referring to Christianity. Chazal were afraid that such a statement about the bird's nest might be a concealed Christian prayer. In terms of a reference, the Father and the Son, your name is remembered for the good, has the same letters as the Nazarene, although in a different order. And of course, the last two about the good ones and Mordim Mordim, as explained, refer to plural gods. Thus, the entire Mishnah is a reference to heretics who tried to covertly insert their ideas into Jewish prayers. This is only a thought which requires further support from other sources and is only a hypothesis at this time. So I bring that up to say that as you slice down good, good is only supposed to speak of a shem. But yet, even in these sources in these prayers here, it's talking about a son who is also good. And then you connect that with, again, the Zohar and the Mishle drop on the Torah is called good. And it's like, hmm, so Yeshua is the good, the Torah is the good, Hashem is good. Well, we have to know that they're all one. So that's interesting because it says, again, that, that Christianity uh, wants to have everything broken out. And it's like, let's talk about how good the Father is. Let's talk about how good the Son is. Without realizing that if you break it down like that, you're actually bringing heresy on yourself because you're breaking up Hashem. You're saying, Hashem, I know you're good, but let me go over here and focus on this other entity. Because this entity is clearly not connected to you. So therefore, you know, you can be good, but this over here is good. Hence why, if you believe in JC, that's all you need. That's that's all the good you got. Don't worry about that observance. Don't worry about learning the law. Like, just be with him and focus on him. Abide in him. And it's like, okay, if that's the case, I can't call him good without calling Hashem good, without calling the Torah good. So, like, either they're all good because they're all one, or he's something completely different, which is the the, heret, the heretical thought that exists in the world today. So that's Shem Ayin, tens and sevens, seventies, sevens, and Shabbat, and all that good stuff. Uh, seem Samic. Shemini rearranges to Seem Samic, same gematria, which means place or set a support or a leaning or a laying or a resting place. So in Parsha Shemini, you're finding a place where you can put yourself to be supported, 
to lay and to rest and to lean. And that happens in the the Kedusha and the holiness of Hashem's word. Hence why we're exhorted, be holy as I am holy. That's where I want you to rest. Rest in holiness. This is why throughout all the craziness and the ups and downs in life that you go through, you just remain in Torah. You just, what, what do I do to get to Shabbat? What do I do to count the Omer? What do I do to celebrate Shabbat? What do I do to celebrate the next Yom Tov? You know, and what do I do to, to keep dressings anew, to keep studying the Torah portions? Like, you're resting in holiness. Me, Yashin. This is probably one of my most favorite things, and this is probably going to be the end of this podcast because there's a whole lot to break down here. But it says that this is who sleeps. Me is how you say who in Hebrew. Like, me Adonai. Who is like you among the gods, Adonai? So, me means who. Yashin means sleeps. Who sleeps? Mm. Well, I love this, y'all. Because not Hashem, but who does sleep? We do. Mortal man i.e. the ones who are in the natural, we sleep, but those who are in the supernatural, they don't sleep. Or do they? You know, because you got to think about Yeshua when he was asleep on the boat. That kind of ties into this because we know Mashiach Yeshua is supernatural. But yet he took on hunger, he took on tiredness he took on sleepy you know because he went to sleep on the boat or did he because as i was looking up that passage about yeshua being asleep on the boat i thought it was interesting that it literally says that there was a suspension of activity well we do know that sleeping there's a suspension of activity because one of the things uh, in the commentaries was saying that when we go to sleep, we breathe through our nose. And Hashem, when he created us, we he created us by breathing into our nostrils to give us the breath of life. And so as we go to sleep, the very thing which gave us life is the only thing that's really going on, like the, the breathing aspect. So there's a, a ceasing of all of the uh, the functioning so, here's what I found on this. Let me go back up. Man, I took so many notes. <laughs> I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have so much notes that I'm not going to even know how to navigate this thing. Okay. So, here we go. So, sleep. Got the Midrash Shabbat. And we got some Pirkei Rebbe Eliezer. Let's go with this. Midrash Shabbat. This Midrash Shabbat 8.10 in Bereshit on Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his image, and the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. The Midrash presents a teaching to our verse. Rabbi Hosea said, 
When the Holy One, blessed be he, created Adam, the first man, the ministering angels erred with regard to Adam and sought to declare him holy. Literally says, because Adam was created in the image of God, the angels confused him with the divine presence. Goes on to say this can be compared to a king and a perfect or in a prefect who were together in the carriage. The people of the province through which the king was traveling wished to declare before the king master, but they did not know which one he was. What did the king do? He pushed the prefect and removed him from the carriage and all knew that he was no more than a prefect. So too, Hagadosh Baruchu created Adam, the first man, the ministering angels erred with regard to Adam and sought to declare before him holy. What did the Holy One, blessed be he, do? He cast a deep sleep upon Adam and all knew that he was no more than a man. Now, that word for deep sleep has to do with our Yeshin. Uh, but in this text here, it uses Tardema, which is a completely different word. But I want to go down to the footnote. It says that, so Hashem, God, cast a deep sleep upon man and he slept. The expression he cast is meant or is expounded to mean that God cast Adam down so that none should ever err after him. And the word Ha'adam, literally the man, is understood as a reference to the first man, Adam. In this verse, God is telling the angels, cease from deifying the man, for you see that he is a mere mortal who requires sleep. During which time the only way is apparent that he is alive is through the breathing in his nostrils. And thus you can know that with what is he deemed worthy, i.e. he is insignificant. So, we're only deemed worthy by the breath of Hashem because apart from that, should Hashem put us to sleep, we would be insignificant. So the breath of Hashem is what makes us significant. And what I like about this is it's saying that mortal man requires sleep and we're not to deify man which is the whole reason why we can't deify the body of Yeshua but we know that Yeshua is the Torah which is the voice of Hashem which comes from Hashem which is divinity Okay, because Hashem is Ain Sof, right? He's without end. He's the infinite one. So therefore, his word, his Torah, which we just went over, is supernatural. It's transcendent. It's from on high. So therefore, when we look at the, the form of Mashiach as a man, and why did we crucify the man so that we know something beyond man is what brings us our salvation. Something beyond being sleep on the boat is what will calm our storms. Which means that we have to place our trust in Hashem, just like Mashiach taught us to. Place your trust in Hashem. 
when you pray, pray to Hashem. You know, and as we study the Torah, we're studying Hashem. We're studying Yeshua. We're studying Hashem. He says that, how can you ask me to show you the Father? If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. So, there's this apparent image, but really it's not about the image. It's about who the image represents. Which is why we didn't go and bow down to the Mishkan. We went and bowed down to a Shem. That's the same thing we have to understand with the likeness and the form of man. Which is a whole reason why we can't get caught up on the the outer uh, aspects of a person. Oh, you can't be Jewish because you're Irish. You can't be Jewish because you're African-American. All that. It's like with the breath of God that's in them and what they're choosing to do with their life. You know, like Hashem has given them that opportunity and he deems them worthy. So we can't look down on them. And furthermore, when a person does come to Hashem and they use their breath their significance to serve Hashem. It doesn't matter where they come from. They can come from any tribe, any tongue, any language, any nation. It's that breath of Hashem which brings out the significance because it's beyond their fleshly body at that point. You know, these bodies that we're in now eventually have to go into the grave. But what's after that? You know, how? what's our habitation and existence after that? Because the body and the soul aren't completely fused together right now, like they were before we fell in the garden. The supernatural and the natural are going to be fused as one, like the body of Mashiach when it was raised. He was showing us, this is what you're going to look like ultimately, but for the time being, your your, your body and your spirit are going to have to separate. You know, And that, that's just going to happen at some point. But Bezrat Hashem, with the resurrection coming soon in our times, you know, that can happen in the twinkling of an eye, which is going to be, that'd be really cool to see. But in the meantime, that's the process for us. So this whole thing about who sleeps, well, one who is gifted by the divine with life. But the distinction comes in the fact that, you know, we may have the image of Hashem, but we are nowhere near Hashem's level and we cannot consider to be deified above him, which is really what happens with JC that, you know, this man, he's seen as God and man and he's deified and he's placed above Hashem. It's not a realization that is Hashem's image. Just like when Adam was created he looks so much like a shim that the angels confuse him. And it's like, uh, let me put him to sleep so that you know. And then it's like, let me go ahead and have Yeshua go to sleep in the boat so that you know. But then when he wakes up, he's going to do stuff and you're going to be like, wait, I thought you weren't, but wait. And it's like, I can't really put my finger on it. And it's like, such is the mysteries of a shim. Because we're talking about things that are in a supernatural realm but we're approaching it from a natural mind. And so unless our mind is renewed and transformed, that's the only way we're going to be able to grab a hold of it. Baruch Hashem.